What is the capacity of human expression? And was Jesus an actual genius? There is a word I cannot pronounce. My sisters in my community have corrected me for years about this word, and I put it in this book. As one part of my brain was reading what was on the page, the other part couldn't squelch the editing instinct. Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet pastor and cultural thought leader Erwin Raphael McManus, nun and activist Joan Chittister, and celebrated Christian writer Philip Yancey. Hear how Erwin Raphael McManus' lifelong study of Jesus, as well as the concept of genius, inspired him to write his book. How Sister Joan Chittister wanted to rouse a dialogue and contemplation in her readers and listeners with her work. And how Philip Yancey hopes his story is for everyone, wherever they may be on the religious spectrum. Enjoy. This is Erwin Raphael McManus, author of The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything. Well, I was inspired by really two particular journeys. One, a lifelong study of the phenomenon of Jesus and a lifelong study of the phenomenon of genius. And for me, it was the collision of these two significant influences in my life. The question of what is the capacity of human expression and was Jesus an actual genius outside of the beliefs of him being God does he qualify as one of history's greatest geniuses? If you had to describe what it was like to record your audiobook in one word, that word would be? It may sound strange, but the word that comes to my mind is moving. Just the idea that God created us with genius. Even though I wrote the book, it actually compels me and moves me to endless possibilities of what the future could look like. Is there a word or phrase that you realized you didn't know how to pronounce? So many. The funniest thing is that I can't actually say the word pastor very well, which is kind of one of the roles I've had in my life. Being Spanish, there are certain words or constructs in English that are really difficult for me to say. What about your narration are you most proud of? That it's honest. I'm excited because I think that... This book gives people an opportunity to see Jesus in a fresh, new, unique, and compelling way. And I'm excited for my friends who are atheists and agnostics and who have never really considered the importance of Jesus in human history, that this book will be a compelling narrative for them. Who is your dream narrator, living or dead, if you hadn't done it yourself? I would love for either... Robert Downey Jr., so he can add a comedic, kind of sarcastic flair to the narrative, or Tom Hardy, just because I think he's probably one of the coolest actors in the world. <laughs> if you listen to audiobooks, what was the last great one you listened to? I actually went back and listened to Glory Road by Robert Heinlein during the pandemic to rehear a book I'd read from my earliest memories. Probably I was, I don't know, eight years old when I first read the book. Where's your favorite place to listen? When I'm running or working out is my favorite place to listen to audiobooks. 
And now, please listen to a clip from my audiobook. I have spent my entire adult life studying genius and searching for God. I always saw those pursuits as mutually exclusive, one a question of human potential and the other a matter of faith. But the longer you live, the more you begin to realize that things you once thought were disparate narratives in your life were actually always interwoven. My fascination with genius and my openness to God were both rooted in a desperate search for something to translate my life from the mundane to the transcendent. Hi, everybody. This is Joan Chittister, the author of The Making of the Monastic Heart. I wrote this book because it occurred to me, having been a Benedictine all my life, that suddenly the notion of having material that was over 1,500 years old is not a Western commonality in any way. And I found myself going through my life saying, any institution that has lived on the same rule book for 1,500 years with no editing of it and no development of it by anybody else, somebody ought to ask, how can that be possible? What does this group have that all of our great institutions seem not to be accustomed to or even thinking of. So actually what I did was look at monastic language as a guide to being able to tell a reader what really was in this ancient institution. But most important of all, I did it to ask how these things have any value to us at this time. Do they or don't they? Is this really 1,500 years old? And if so, does it have anything to do with the way we go through life, spiritually, thoughtfully, institutionally, at all? I think you'll enjoy it for that reason. If I had to describe what it was like to record my own audiobook and tell you a feeling in me in one word, that word would be awe. Not because of my book, but Imagine sitting in front of this very, very high-class microphone, to tell you the truth, but realizing that we are touching one another. You're somebody I want to meet. You're somebody I care about. And I hope that that book will rouse a dialogue in you. So thinking of all the people who had taken upon themselves to make this book and this conversation between the two of us possible, that's all. That's all. This is a fair, unfair question. There is a word I cannot pronounce. My sisters in my community have corrected me for years about this word, and I put it in this book. And the word is, hang on, vulnerable, which I forever say vulnerable, vulnerable. V-U-N, not V-U-L. And if I had had a brain, I would not have written it down again in a publication like this. So you're going to come to it. I want you to be nice to me. I confessed. I'm excited that listeners will, I think, in this book, get an insight 
into a world that they have no other way of examining except through language. I began to understand when I began this writing that we take so much for granted. Little things like bells. Why do monasteries have bells? Or why do you have processions? And are all processions alike? Or what about candles? Why do people use candles? You don't need candles anymore. We have light bulbs. All of those you see touch in to our tradition, yes, but 1,500 years of development of kind of a spiritual insight or sense or taste. And I wanted you to have that sense and that taste of where these ideas come from and what they're expressing or demonstrating now that they've been demonstrating for 1,500 years and you thought they were new. I would want somebody to have recorded this audiobook whose personality has some relationship to my own. And by that I mean this is a very personal act to me. And I'm not being nice telling you that I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to think you would bother to read a book that I had written and hope that it would give you another phenomenal arch overview of centuries and know how much of the past you're holding in your own hands yet. I wouldn't just want a formal presentation of the book. I want this to be a conversation between the two of us, as if we met at a coffee shop, and you said to me, Joan, what are you working on and why? And who are you going to have read it? And I'd say, somebody who wants to talk to you about it as badly as I do. And now then, listen to a clip from my audiobook. The monastic heart is a heart that goes through life on a wave of common time. Its hours are counted out and set up in unchanging and perpetual order. In the monastery, over and over again, every day of a monastic's life, the community bells mark the passing of the moment, of the work, of the hours of prayer, of our lifelong promises, of life's important things. Hi, this is Philip Yancey, author of Where the Light Fell. I wrote my book because I wanted to stitch together for myself a zigzag life. I grew up immersed in Southern fundamentalism, went through a period in which I rejected all religious faith for a time, and then found a writing career in which I could explore what to keep and what to discard. The United States is a religious nation, and I think most everyone who grows up in an intense religious background goes through a somewhat similar process. And we now live in a fiercely divided society. I hope this book can be a kind of bridge builder, no matter where you are on that spectrum. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be exhausting. <laughs> I'm an introvert, and I don't say that many words in a day. Also, as one part of my brain was reading what was on the page, the other part couldn't squelch the editing instinct. Could I have written that better? Is that the best word to use there? And I probably shouldn't say this, 
But I actually learned to adjust my diet before recording. It works best if you eat something bready, like an English muffin, to soak up stomach acid. Otherwise, you also have to worry about one more thing, a growling stomach. I realized that I had trouble pronouncing certain words. I said humongous, and the director challenged that. Humongous, she said. But in the end, she let it pass. She chalked up my pronunciation to some residual southern accent. Also, route and root. I didn't know this, but I learned that route is more common in American English, with some exceptions, such as Route 66, whereas root is the standard in British English. I've recorded some of my other books, but they were all nonfiction, idea-driven books. A memoir is far more personal, and as a result, I expressed more emotion. Several times I had to stop, choke back tears, and compose myself. Memoirs don't merely tell about the author's life. They summon up chords of response in the readers or listeners. I hope listeners experience a commonality as I tell of simple things like learning to read or my love for dogs or early encounters with racism. If I was not going to record my own audiobook, I think I'd cast somebody like Ken Burns, who narrates all those public broadcasting series. I love his voice. I remember listening to the audiobook Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed about the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. I listened to that book in the midst of a fierce Chicago winter, jogging along the ice-covered path by Lake Michigan with chunks of ice floating in the lake. So many of my memories connect sensory experiences with what I was listening to at the time. I used to devour audiobooks when I was a runner. I lived in downtown Chicago and every day would go for a jog along the lakefront with a book playing through my earphones. Knee problems eventually caught up with me, so these days I'm more likely to listen in a fitness center on low-impact aerobic machines. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. My girlfriend, who will later become my wife, is making her first visit to my home city of Atlanta in early 1968. The two of us stop by my grandparents' house with my mother, have a snack, and retire to the living room. My grandparents sit in matching recliners across from the upholstered couch where Janet and I are seated. A television plays softly in the background tuned to the ever-boring Lawrence Welk show. Normally, my 80-year-old grandfather snores through the program, waking just in time to pronounce, Swellest show I ever saw. Tonight, though, everyone is wide awake, fixing their attention on Janet. Phillips never brought a girl over. This must be serious. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening. For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash next listen.